Hello and welcome to this episode of Irreligiosophy 2.0, the one true podcast, and the only podcast to gently caress and touch your private parts. Well, what? We do that? We do that? What? I guess we do no. That. Oh, no. I, yeah, we did that. We, yeah, well, we did. well, no, it's a Chuck. It's a, it's, a, it's a joke, Chuck. It's not a Chuck. It's a, it's a joke. <laughs> It was a joke? It's not a Chuck joke. <laughs> it's a joke, Chuck. Oh. Because of the topic we're doing today. The Fondling Fathers. Fondling, we're doing, we're covering Fondling Fathers. You mean the, like the, the Founding Fathers. What? Founding. The, fa- the Founding oh. Fathers. Oh. Oh, I'm not prepared. I've... I've done... Well, I'll just give you what I got. <laughs> I got something on the Duggars. <laughs> to be fair... He wasn't a father when he was fondling. <laughs> but I think he is now. Oh, What's going you know, on with the Duggars? This is almost a Matt's Anthropology Corner topic. Because um, it's so goddamn interesting. And by interesting, I mean I can't take any more coverage of the, the Duggars. <laughs> I didn't watch the show. I mean, I heard of it. How can you not hear of a show that's just kind of annoyingly Christian and has, you know, more children than a Peruvian folk band? Duck Dynasty? <laughs> what? Duck Dynasty? <laughs> Duck Di- How many children they got? I don't know if they got children like these people got children. The Duggars have uh, 19 and counting. Wasn't the show originally 17 and counting? Yeah, it was like 17, then it was eight, 19. Now it's up to... 27 or something i don't know but if you're not aware by now of the whole controversy the duggars are a super evangelical independent baptist fundamental christian family with 19 children and they've had a show for the past i don't know how many years six seven on tlc the the learning channel (laughs) can they not afford birth control is that their problem that is not their problem so many children they just can't afford birth control well, that is a possibility, but it's it's they don't have to, they don't say like oh we can't afford birth control. It's just not a question. <laughs> There's no like <laughs> it's never even an option. <laughs> no, if only we could afford a condom. <laughs> nope. Um, but Chuck, this goes deeper than just one sad boy fondling his sisters in the middle of the night. And, and I don't even want to cover that fucking story because that's I mean except for one fact. This kid, Josh Duggar, because of this scandal, he's had to resign from his position at, like, I think it's the American Family Research Council or whatever, they, the family, re- you know, that shitty group. Yeah, um, some right-wing conservative bullshit. Yeah, basically he was in charge of stopping the gay agenda, <laughs> yeah, fighting yeah, gay marriage. Exactly. Isn't that uh, the true tragedy, his resignation? Right. Oh, who will fight the gays now? Who knows? I'm sure he'll find some more work. We'll carry that torch. Anyway, they're not just your ordinary batshit crazy uber-Christian family, Chuck. They are followers of a frightening fundamentalist sect that is known as the Quiverful Movement. Quiverful Movement. Are they comparing living, breathing children with just a bunch of inanimate objects inside a bag? I, yes. (laughs) Just bag o' children. Uh, Everyone, <laughs> fill up your bag. I think they're trying to 
jump on Hawkeye's bandwagon from the, the Avengers? No. No. Yeah. So, um, so what's it all about, Chuck? It's 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 somewhat new idea. I mean, it, not really, but I guess as far as being uh, organized, but um, its roots are in the '80s. It spread mostly through homeschooling and network between other like-minded families. And of course, with the rise of internet, social media, it has expanded enormously uh, since then. Well, also that and the fact that they're literally, literally <laughs> multiplying and expanding. <laughs> That's the first commandment. Um, so I'm going to call it QFM because Quirful Movement is hard to say sometimes. QFM is easier? It's easier. QFM. So if you look at it from the surface, it's not really that different from any other like typical evangelical nonsense, right? Biblical literalism, uh, traditional gender roles, family values. I put that in air quotes. Family values. Like molesting um, your sisters? <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, well, basically, family values means no gays. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I got you. Uh, as well, the secular world is both feared and scorned, uh, unless, of course, you can get a TV show. <laughs> yeah. Screw, and make money from it. Screw the secular world, except <laughs> for their money. I'll take their money. Um, so their one tenet that basically shapes the rest of their movement is that birth control is evil, have as many children as possible, and build your own little fundamentalist you know, cult, your, your private army, essentially, of little fundamentalists. It's almost like the uh, God hates fags people, you know. Yeah. Just inbreed them and, and... Isn't it kind of an admission that your uh, whole lifestyle is uh, idiot is so idiotic that you can't convince other people to agree with you, and so what you want to do is build your own little kingdom to convince people under force? It You know, they're so... They feel marginalized, and they're like little islands of truth. That they feel they have to to breed like this in order to uh, – well, actually, I'll get into that because it gets funny. Uh, but first of all, where doth the name come from, Chuck? I where imagine it is a hunting reference. Psalm 127 of the King James Bible reads thusly. Lo, children – should I do the voice like Monty Python? Yes. Lo, children are a heritage to the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward – Wait, I thought that was underwear. Well, that's fruit of the loom. Never mind. Fruit of the loins? <laughs> no, and the fruit of the womb is oh. his reward. Um, as arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. I don't know what that means. Children of children? I, I Speak know. English. <laughs> Happy is his man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Happy is a man who also smashes small children against the rocks, but that's, yes. that is a different psalm. And also, you can send one of your underlings' hot wives' husbands to war so that he doth die. You can have her. Marry that uh, hot underling's wife. Yes. But the problem is God still sees it. He still he sees all. And, I don't know, looks on you with approbation from far away. I, what happened to David? Possibly. I don't know. He died. <laughs> um, so you see the metaphor here, huh? Huh? Yes. Each child is basically another arrow in your quiver of fundamentalism. So you want, <laughs> shall we say, a full quiver of fundamentalism. Yes. And that quiver can never be full. 
Um, the scary thing is they are everywhere now. They're spread out all over. It's really hard to know how many there are, but they can be found in any traditional, fundamental evangelical church trying to drag more and more people down their narrow path to Christianity. And their goal is basically to outnumber anyone who disagrees with them. So, Matt, basically they consider a woman's vagina the same as that magic trick where you pull out the handkerchief and you keep pulling and pulling and it never ends. Yes, except they're children. (laughs) (laughs) Just plop, plop, plop. So really not that different, right? So far from like, say, uh, Mormons or maybe even Catholics. The difference is that they turn having kids into a political statement. They need to out-reproduce those Muslims, Chuck. The quantity of children they put out in the world is essentially it's a mission statement. Right, yeah. Don't convert. Reproduce. That's much easier. Oh, and woe be to the woman who can't bear children, say, fertility issues. Uh, And I think we all know who's to blame for that, right? (laughs) The Lord? No, you're wrong. It's the woman. It's never the Lord. (laughs) Barrenness is the result of a sinful heart, and in any situation, the woman's at fault. The men, of course, blameless, and God does not condone fertility treatments. Uh, But maybe you have other problems. It means you probably shouldn't get pregnant. You know, maybe possibly medical problems or other issues. They will still encourage you because dying in childbirth, that's virtuous. And you can become a martyr. And then, of course, the man can just get married. I was going to say that. (laughs) Easy for the man to say. Right. No, just do it. How virtuous is it? Um, so here's here's the breakdown of the movement. Uh, you're going to like this. These are the essential qualities that you must subscribe to. Women must obey men. That's that's the first well, one, that's right? That's a given. Patriarchy. That's a I know. given. Why am I even mentioning that? I don't know. Um, you can trace uh, that QFM tenet back to the uh, – it's anti-feminist act back to uh, Mary Pride, who published a book in 1985 called The Way to Home Beyond Feminism Back to Reality. I <laughs> love it. Uh, her journey and a vision of a woman's biblical place is what the book is about, which is, of course, in the home and filling it with children. Of course. Of course. Of course. Um, so the other tenets, courtship or betrothal, no dating, no holding hands, no hanky-panky, none of that stuff. Uh, the sheltering of children, meaning uh, you know keeping them away from the, the secular world. Secular. You don't want them getting out there. Um, it's working well for the Duggars, right? They got their oldest, uh, essentially. Uh, he's, he's in the secular world, but it's that narrow version of it out there working towards promoting uh, their values or essentially denying others <laughs> what they don't believe they should have. Keep them away from that evil secular world and right. uh, trapped uh, inside your godly home where you get molested over and over and over again. Uh, it's okay. It was just a mild bit of molesting. Yeah, right. yeah, like uh, Richard Dawkins' mild pedophilia. Well, like, right, like Richard Dawkins. Oh, I should have seen that. I should have thought of that. <laughs> That's what the girl, the poor girls. I mean, yeah. every fucking story about this is just about the stupid kid and no thought to the victims. But some of the girls are like, oh, it was very mild. I was asleep. I guess it's, it doesn't count. It's okay. Yeah. It's um, again, of course. It's the uh, you got to protect the reputation of the man, and not the self yeah. safety, welfare, well being of the woman. Right, so, the real victim the, is of course is the man's the reputation. Man. Um, of course, strict biblical male female roles. 
Uh, another tenet, independent of debt or government help, even if it means living in extreme poverty. Uh, this can be very fairly common within the QFM because they'll have all these children, but uh, they're not going to accept government help, welfare, although probably – although some of them still do, but uh, still just living uh, on the edge. I mean – seems like a – Seems like a recipe for government health. You got nineteen kids, I, I know. no no TV show to support you. I mean, how in the hell? Right? How is that possible? Where's Where's my goddamn TV show? <laughs> and um, you, you kind of skipped over the the first part, but they're really sexually repressive, right? They don't allow yes. them to date. Uh, no hand holding. Uh, don't even think about it. And so, you know, what does that do to you? It makes you molest your sisters. Yeah, yeah, um, possibly. Uh, another tenet is is extreme modesty uh, that really only goes for women. Which right? So, I was just... Sorry, <laughs> sorry, ladies. <laughs> Translates into women get covered from head to foot. Right, and uh, and of course they are radically pro life. So sounds great. Um, <laughs> I wonder what they did last Sunday on Pride Pride weekend. Had sex. Probably not married. No, not the gays. I'm talking about the Duggars and oh. those people. <laughs> They probably had sex, too. They probably did, trying to make new children. More quivers. More children! We will have our own pride parade, but we will call it Merry Pride Parade. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So that's the quiverful movement. I can't even pronounce it. uh, It comes out of my mouth like bile. (laughs) (laughs) Matt, don't (laughs) knock it till you try it. Don't How many kids do I have to have be, to consider being tried? <laughs> I think ten or fewer is not really giving it your all. I had seven. I can't take it anymore. They're all molesting each other. It's not working out. <laughs> it's all mild molestation. Oh, jeez. Okay. Well, let's keep Put going. Put it in perspective, for God's <laughs> sakes. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah, so there you go. That's the thing. Yeah, and um, of course the uh, conservative media. We can't say the mainstream media because that's been co-opted, right? The, the conservative, but the conservative oh, you mean the media. The mainstream media, Chuck. <laughs> conservative media uh, is very. They they handle them with kid gloves, right? Very light touch. And I think one of the um, one of the best comments I've I've seen on that is, you know, how would these guys be treating the same story? If it was Obama who mildly molested his sisters. Well, right. <laughs> right. Uh, they would be treating it not the same. <laughs> I'm going to just go out on a limb here. <laughs> Mike Huckabee defends him. All of the uh, Fox News, pretty oh. much. Oh. You know, it's not that bad. It's really, he, they've been victimized by the media more than they were victimized by their brother, so... Let me say this about Mike Huckabee and his defense of them. I I I somewhat agree with him because it, his general point was, hey, this kid was was young at the time. Uh, you, you should you shouldn't you shouldn't punish someone for the rest of their life because of something they did when they were young. So let's see, Mike Huckabee, it, you're running for president. Let's see how true to that comment you want to be. You know how supportive of of. Of children who screw up when they're when they're young, if should they be tried it as adults, you know, should they should they be forgiven later on in life so they don't have that falling around with it? You think he'll be he'll be that way if it's a kid that say is not part of some evangelical movement or a kid that stole a car or got caught with drugs, you know? Um, so so 
I'm going to let that sit for now and see how Mike Huckabee, if he lives up to his own standards. Just I tuck, suspect he's not. Tuck that back into your quiver uh, yeah. for future use. I'll put that in my quiver of things to <laughs> check off. <laughs> I I really got to write down those things because my quiver is just a <laughs> just a mass of post-it notes on the side of my desk. <laughs> Ah, excellent. Here's what I'm saying, Chuck. Fuck Mike Huckabee. Okay, so fuck basically, him. <laughs> Mike Huckabee, conservative media, Josh Duggar, the entire Duggar family, the yes. Global movement, all skunk dicks of the week. Is is that what we're saying here? They're all skunk dicks, but I still have skunk dicks. Oh, <laughs> of course you do. Of course I do. Oh. You know, all my skunk dicks are trending transgender and gay in, like, their categories, Chuck. I don't know why. Well, I, I don't, I don't trans- seek them out. Transgender is a hot topic now. It's a hot topic. So guess who can't wrap their mind around Caitlyn Jenner or, a.k.a., the Bruce Jenner situation? <laughs> Bruce Jenner situation. Uh, Mike Huckabee. Mike Huckabee is correct. It. No, it, it probably is. You know, I'm gonna say it's that's probably right. <laughs> do you, do you know what he said? <laughs> what did he say? I, I knew it. I wish say? I could claim to be transgender when I was back in high school, so I could shower with the girls. That's fucking right. Okay, Mike. Let me tell you how many ways that's wrong. First of all, being transgender is not a sin. It's not like it's not like where you guys go off against gays. It's it's a woman. It's someone who feels that they're woman or male. It's not it's not being homosexual, so you shouldn't have a problem with that, right? And second of all, he's making light of a situation that, that he's basically saying they're doing it for the purposes of getting off or you know, right? Which is how he thinks he would be, you know. That's yeah. what Mike Huckabee would like to be. I'd Mike like to Huckabee sneak into the girls the, and take a peek at him. Sees the entire uh plight of transgenders in the United States right now. As uh, wanting to go secretly into the women's right. bathroom is like a bunch of that's 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 his fantasy, I believe. But uh, no surprise, um, Steve Harvey also just can't wrap his mind around it. Oh my <laughs> God! Are we about to retire Steve Harvey's jersey? Everybody says it's the bravest thing they've seen. That's the politically correct thing to say. That was my Steve Harvey impression, by the way. I don't, I don't even know what he's I can't what he sounds like. <laughs> oh, God. Harvey, it's not politically correct. It's just freaking, pol- you know, it's it's decent thing to say. How would you feel if the person you are just just brought out the worst in people if you came out, just walked down the street? Um, that's why it's brave, okay? Because just by being yourself, you just engender shit. I can't wrap my mind around it at all. Zero. I have no concept of what it means. Uh, nothing negative, though. <laughs> but I just can't come in my house and make that announcement to my wife or to my children. Nope. <laughs> nice thing about it is you don't have to, Steve. You don't have to understand yes! it. Just fucking right. <laughs> leave them alone. Let them live their life. It has nothing to do with whether Steve Harvey understands or doesn't. No. Chucky can't wrap his mind around it. When asked if he would have Jenner on his show, Harvey said... Uh, my wife told me I couldn't do the interview. She said my face is too expressive. <laughs> oh my god! What are you talking about? Family Feud, or does he have some other fucking show? Oh, uh, I think he has. Um, does he have another fucking show? 
I don't know. Steve Harvey show. I don't know. The Steve okay. Harvey transgender interview hour. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Oh yeah. Oh, that would be. I'd love. I'd watch that show. <laughs> oh yeah, me too. Guess who else we have for a uh, skunk dick? So Charles, Steve Harvey, Mike Huckabee. Mike Huckabee. Uh, I don't know. The son of Graham. Franklin. Franklin Graham. Franklin Graham. Franklin Graham, son of Evangelist. Evangelist? That's evangelist. like an instrument, I think. Son of Evangelist? <laughs> <laughs> Is it an Evangelist or an Evangelist? Evangelist. Evangelist. Christians should boycott businesses to provoke a gay, style, gay lifestyle, just like Wells Fargo. Eh? What? Wells Fargo ran an ad that featured a lesbian couple, so Graham instantly moved the assets of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association to the Winston-Salem, North Carolina-based BB&T Bank. Or one of those B's might be bank. I don't know. He said, I'm not going to do business with a business promoting sin. As Christians, we don't have to do business with Starbucks, with Nikes, and with Wells Fargo or Tiffany's that are promoting a gay lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. Remember, Chuck? It's not, it's not, it's not anything innate. It's like being a swinger or liking collecting porcelain dolls or something. Right. It's um, a, a predisposition or a tendency. Yeah. Although um, BB&T, a good solid bank, that's a quote, uh, has also been involved in the support of the gay community. Uh, recently this year, in salute of legacy couples at Miami's uh, Gay Pride Parade in 2009, and um, also salute to couples that have been committed since uh, for the last 10 years, that is. Uh, but that doesn't matter. They've got 107.7 million in contributions just in 2014. Chuck, we are in the wrong goddamn business. Well, right. I mean, it took us years to get to that amount. <laughs> yeah, we're so close. <laughs> um, so recently, Franklin Graham, who's who's a essentially he's an opponent of the LGBT community, uh, praised Russian President Vladimir Putin for criminalizing speech that is perceived as pro-gay propaganda directed at young people. When you're on the side of Putin, you know. Uh, right. How can you possibly be wrong? Uh, but most damning of all for Franklin is that last April he took to Facebook to express his outrage at Marvel Comics. Do you know why? Marvel Comics. I uh, bet you can guess. Because Thor was made a woman? Oh, I'm surprised... He probably did. <laughs> no, it's because Iceman will come out as gay. Iceman's gay. This is, of course, a part of an ongoing effort to indoctrinate our young people to accept this destructive lifestyle. You mean creating ice out of your hands? <laughs> yes. That is a sin against God, Chuck. Flying, Great surfing ice. around on ice bridges, causing them to melt all over the place. You know, that's it's kind of thoughtless when you think about it. Yeah. Who's going to clean all that shit up? Exactly. Uh, Franklin Graham, he be scum dickin'. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got. All right, Matt, let's take all those uh, skunk dick candidates and put it in the computer. My God, uh, for the first time in irreligiosity skunk dick history, Matt, yeah? a candidate did not emerge. Instead... A new segment did called Suck It Creationists. Suck It Creationists? Oh, God. Guess who it is. It's Edgar. No, no, 
You know what? I asked you to guess, and then I just started saying his name. You did not oh, give me you any guess. time to guess at all. <laughs> take take I'm some time. With, I'm withdrawing my guess. <laughs> I had a good one. It's Who was it? What was your guess? Just out of curiosity. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. It wasn't Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> it's Edgar Nuremberg. Nuremberg. Nuremberg of the Nuremberg, Nuremberg trials. Nuremberg. Edward Nuremberg is a creationist that lives in Canada. He was out digging his new basement in uh, northwest Calgary. Uh, that's Alberta, okay, if you don't understand Canada. I, that doesn't um, help me, Matt. That does not help me. <laughs> straight north from here, Chuck. Straight north. Boop. He's digging a new basement, and he finds five fossil fish that Darla Zelenitsky, a paleontologist at the University of Calica, Calgary reports are 60 million years old. Complete fossils from that time period. Um, great tool for helping scientists show how animals evolved after dinosaurs went extinct. So well done, Edgar. Now, Matt, uh, help me out here. Where does 60 million fit in the uh, last 6,000 years? Well, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Where does that fall precisely? Nuremberg thinks it's all a sham. He said, quote, these fish don't have time stamps on them. Except. <laughs> Was he there? Except they do, in a way. Um, yeah, his comeback was, look, uh, look the paleontologists, their feedback, their, their evidence, it hasn't changed his mind. We all have the same evidence, he said. It's just a matter of how you interpret it. Oh, that's, yes. that's right out of the playbook. <laughs> yep, those paleontologists weren't there. No. They don't know. So suck it, Nuremberg, but thanks for contributing to the body of knowledge about evolution that you do not accept. All right. That segment was so long I've forgotten about the actual subject of the podcast. What what are we doing? We're doing a segment on fondling fathers. Fondling fathers. Ah, oh, yes. Matt, I'm going to delay that even more because I want to set up the background of the founding fathers, the, the environment which they sprang up, mostly about the Enlightenment. Mostly. You know, the, the problem is Christians – here's the thought process, right? So uh, I'm a Christian, and I know my Christianity is true, and therefore I'm very patriotic about America. I love America. I love the Founding Fathers. Therefore, the Founding Fathers must have been Christian. Done. That's the thinking process. Done. And the problem with that is reality. These founding fathers weren't so much a product of Christian background, by and large, but the background of the Enlightenment. So take it away, Matt. Tell us about the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment. That was a period of heavy drug use in the late 60s, <laughs> early 70s, mostly culminating in the LSD experiments of Timothy Orger. Uh, um, the Beatles were a major driving force, I believe. Very close. Very close. Oh. The Enlightenment began roughly around 1650, ran to about 1800, as an answer to the excesses of religious strife that had plagued the world over the preceding several centuries, right? Right. Remember the little thing called the Reformation? The Reformation. I'm familiar with the word. Began when Martin Luther... Uh, posted his 95 theses in uh, 1517. Oh. About everything that was wrong with the Catholic Church. Yeah, he nailed it to the door of some church in a place. 
John Calvin broke from the Catholic Church around 1530 uh, and uh, set up the uh, Calvinist movement. Wait a second. All these guys have sects named after them. Yes, exactly. Sects. (laughs) Sects. Henry VIII set up the Church of England in 1534, not because he had any principal difference uh, with the Catholic Church, but because the Pope refused to annul his marriage so he could move on to another wife. (laughs) Well, screw you then. I'll start my own church. (laughs) (laughs) We believe pretty much all the same shit, but I don't know. Fuck the Pope is basically his one thesis. Yeah, but you can get divorced. That's that's our one true tenet. Uh, now, the Catholic Church didn't take this sitting down. Uh, at the beginning with the Council of Trent in 1545, they mounted their counter-reformation, uh, and that lasted until the end of the Thirty Years' War in 1648, right? So the Protestant nations are fighting against Catholic nations, vice versa. Massive loss of life, not only from all these wars, uh, but the famine and disease resulting from the collapse of infrastructure, right, that all these wars yeah. caused. Um, people were, you know, in Catholic countries, Protestants were being persecuted. In Protestant countries, Catholics are being persecuted. They don't really have any fucking rights because there's an established church in every one of these. And whether they like it or not, they've got to attend. <laughs> they've got to pay to support it. Uh, you can't uh, often hold office unless you belong to the established church, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, unsurprisingly, this time period also coincided with some of the worst excesses of the witch trials. Remember that episode? I remember. I was there. Do you remember those eight episodes, Matt? (laughs) Only eight. And what I'm sure was a total coincidence, most of the witches uh, that were uncovered in Protestant countries happen to be Catholic. Right. (laughs) And most of the witches found in Catholic countries have to be Protestant. I'm sure that's just a coincidence. Yeah. Well, she turned me into a newt. (laughs) This Protestant at the edge of town turned me a Catholic into a newt. Into a newt. Uh, that's this still has roots in modern society in uh, in the UK with uh, right with northern is it is it Northern Ireland and Ireland Ireland and Britain it's a whole giant mess. You know what I thought was interesting is that Ireland voted uh, was it a vote or a referendum I don't know basically they voted to uh, legalize gay marriage the first country in the world to do so right just across the board um, even though it's a pretty a highly Catholic country. I think it was just, um, or it's a highly uh, uh, Christian country, I guess you could say, a religious country. So, so basically, 500 years later, Ireland is undergoing its own reformation. Well, they're just... Fuck they're, you, Catholics! Exactly. There you go. It's like, okay, you know, we believe this, but fuck you, Catholics. Yeah. <laughs> We're letting the gays get married. Uh, Rejection! So, <clears throat> there's a lot of that sentiment now after all these wars, right? A lot of the persecution right. against these minority religions had the sanction of the state. So you could often find officers of the official established state religion roaming around looking for evidence of belief in anything you know other than the established church uh, or any of these uh, minority practices so that they could harass, uh, execute, or otherwise imprison, punish these uh, wrongdoers. In the eyes wrongdoers. Of the well, wrongdoing in the sense that they're not along with the established right church. Ah, okay. So, uh, in England in 1688, the Glorious Revolution, right? You may re- recall from your uh, U.S. history class in 10th grade. I recall nothing. Removed James II from the throne and placed his daughter Mary, 
now, in exchange for certain concessions, they had to uh, act kind of through the consent of the parliament. So they changed England's absolute monarchy into a constitutional monarchy. Only after this happened did dissenters from the Church of England gain any sort of real rights. <laughs> 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 so now that, you know, they're kind of governing with the consent of the governed, now the governed are getting actually significant rights. Oh, hey. In 1689, the Act of Toleration passed, allowing everyone to worship as they wanted, so long as they were Christian and professed a belief in the Trinity and a disbelief in transubstantiation. So basically, <laughs> you know, worship. Life. Uh, you know, it's like Ford said, you can have any color of the uh, right. royalty, so long as it's black. black. That was actually... For the time, remarkable tolerance. <laughs> right. Super progressive. <laughs> France went the other way, uh, revoked its edict of toleration, began uh, re-oppressing everyone who wasn't a Catholic. Uh, that didn't sit well with France's intellectuals, who uh, were called the philosophes. Philosophes? Yes. There's a there's a so there's something missing there in the end. Yeah, it's French for philosopher. You know, if you want to speak French, you just drop the R off the end of the word. Oh, I think you dropped the S too. Philosoph. 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 Uh, so that's kind of where the Enlightenment is kind of beginning, right? So it's the driving sure. force behind the Enlightenment was really the success of, of science and the scientific method at making the world understandable. Like heretofore, it, w it wasn't even, I think, comprehensible that you could understand the workings of gravity or anything like this until Newton came along. And Newton showed through mathematics that, yeah, you can, say, predict when you throw a rock where it's going to land, how fast it's going to be, it, its trajectory, et cetera, et cetera, right? Are we saying that the is it the Reformation or the Enlightenment that was that's kind of coincident with scientific progress or scientific intellectualism? The Enlightenment. The Enlightenment. Okay. Uh, you know, it's notable that this um, massively successful theory, Newtonian physics, didn't come from any revealed source, right? It wasn't a priest who revealed this shit. It was through the workings of philosophy and science. Right. And and this success made people intellectual people question any sort of revealed knowledge that was you know secret and only successful to certain people such as kings and priests it put the bible pretty much right in the crosshairs uh, intellectuals like spinoza for example started studying the bible with the same critical eye they studied other historical texts and right of course found it riddled with the same superstition and supernatural events that were in every other kind of founding religious text wait religion is superstition during the Enlightenment, that's like the first time I think people really started thinking of religion since the pagan era as uh, superstition. No, say it isn't so. <laughs> this led to a kind of uh, cultural relativism where Christianity was viewed by the elite in the same light as they viewed, say, Persian religions, right? Uh -huh. And they also kind of looked back at the horror that Christianity had caused historically this was highlighted in Edward Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, which he devoted two full chapters to the idea that the, the, the ancient noble pagan world had been corrupted and destroyed by Christianity, which then proceeded to drive the rest of the world into a thousand years of darkness. So, <laughs> I will agree with that. <laughs> We're still in that darkness. We're <laughs> barely nope. clawing our way out of it. <laughs> so one of the most influential political thinkers of the Enlightenment uh, was John Locke. As a matter of fact, in 1689, uh, when England passed the Act of Toleration, 
that was shortly after Locke uh, published the first of his letters concerning toleration, right, which advocated a separation of church and state, which is a pretty radical idea at the time. Right. He he thought that, okay, you can have an established church, but uh, you should be tolerant of all the rest of the churches, right? Sure. This is the guy from Lost, right? In his <laughs> letters concerning toleration, he said, uh, now that the whole jurisdiction of the magistrate reaches only to these civil concernments, among which he lists life, liberty, health, ownership of goods, property. Pretty similar, right, to the uh, Declaration of uh, Independence. Yes, I've heard this somewhere before. Uh, <laughs> this will sound familiar because, the, again, the, the Founding Fathers were heavily influenced by Enlightenment philosophers, especially, no, especially Locke. No, Jesus. It was Jesus. And that it neither can nor ought in any manner to be extended to the salvation of souls. So he's saying that this, the power of the magistrate, the civil authority, should uh, concern itself just with civil things. And it should separate itself from concerning itself about the soul, right? He says, The business of laws is not to provide for the truth of opinions, but for the safety and security of the commonwealth and of every particular man's goods and persons. So no opinions, no uh, stuff that like isn't scientifically proven, right, such as religion, should be established by the force of law. Chuck, it sounds like he's promoting a secular lifestyle. <laughs> yes. Yes. So that's about the civil authority. About religion, he said, uh, If a Roman Catholic believe that to be really the body of Christ, which another man calls bread, he does no injury thereby to his neighbor. If a Jew do not believe the New Testament to be the word of God, he does not thereby alter anything in men's civil rights. If a heathen doubt of both Testaments... He is not, therefore, to be punished as a pernicious citizen. So how familiar does that sound to uh, Jefferson when he said, it does me no injury for my neighbor to say there are 20 gods or no god. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. That sounds familiar. Almost directly from Locke. Yeah. Um, heavily influenced. As a matter of fact, some of our uh, arguments, some of the arguments taken up by the new atheists, right, had their origin during the Enlightenment. Am I a new the atheist? You are a new atheist, absolutely. Oh, sweet. And this is why the criticism is, you know, there's nothing really new about new atheism, <laughs> except right. that we're more vocal. <laughs> Here's a quote from uh, Anthony Ashley Cooper, who is the third Earl of Shaftesbury. I don't want to confuse him with the second Earl of Shaftesbury. No, and the fourth Earl was a total dick. Yeah. The third Earl is where you want to be. It was heretofore the wisdom of some wise nations to let people be fools as much as they pleased, and never to punish seriously what deserved only to be laughed at, and was, after all, best cured by that innocent remedy. <laughs> I mean, that's not exactly... That's us, man! Yeah! <laughs> that's us, Earl of Shaftesbury. Scorn and mockery. <laughs> uh, here's another... Um, this was written in 1699. He who is now an Orthodox Christian would have been infallibly as true a Muslim or as errant a heretic had his birth been in another place. I mean, that, other than Muslim for the word Muslim. Right. <laughs> oh, okay. Could, could <laughs> like, be, what's a Muslim? <laughs> could be taken right out of Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins, right? I mean, he's saying that, yeah. shit, it's pretty much where you were born. That That's... That's what decides it. There's nothing really true or false about it. It's just where you happen to be born. Another Enlightenment philosopher, um, Baron de Holbach, wrote, It is asked what motives an atheist can have to do good. The motive to please himself and his fellow creatures, to live happily and peaceably, to gain the affection and esteem of men whose existence and dispositions are much more sure and known than those of a being impossible to be known. Can he who fears not the gods fear anything? He can fear men. He can fear contempt, dishonor, 
the punishment and vengeance of the laws. In short, he can fear himself and the remorse felt by all those who are conscious of having incurred or merited the hatred of their fellow creatures. So this is uh, in answer to, you know, if he's an atheist, how in the world can he have morals? I mean, how long has that argument been going on? Yeah, over and over and over. David Hume, my personal favorite Enlightenment philosopher. Hume! In 1748 wrote Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding. He had a whole chapter entitled Of Miracles, right? Where he argued the only way a belief in a miracle would be reasonable is if belief that the miracle didn't happen is more unreasonable than the miracle it was itself. Right. <laughs> he wrote... It forms a strong presumption against all supernatural and miraculous relations that they are observed chiefly to abound among ignorant and barbarous nations. <laughs> ah. What a dick. <laughs> uh, but Hume, like many of the new atheists now, believe that religious impulse arise primarily through fear, right? Fear of harm, fear of death, fear of what we don't understand. Uh, he also believed moral judgments were primarily emotional, and so, of course, we're separate from and could function without religion. Now, Voltaire, who's uh, pretty much the Enlightenment philosopher, uh, often thought of as an atheist. You know, he's, he's tough because he's, he really sounds like an atheist when you read him. He probably was a deist, but he had similar disregard for religion when it came to morality. You know, when people confronted him... Uh, and, and they argued that if you remove Christianity f from the public morality, <clears throat> you'll leave yeah. nothing in its place, you know? What are you going to put in its place? Voltaire replied, What? A ferocious animal has sucked the blood of my family. I tell you to get rid of that beast, and you ask me, what shall we put in its place? Right. <laughs> his, his thoughts on religion uh, bear repeating because... They were, again, very influential in the Founding Fathers, and they're paraphrased by them later on. Uh, he said, There are no sects in geometry. One does not speak of a Euclidean and Archimedean. When the truth is evident, it is impossible for parties and factions to arise. There has never been a dispute as to whether there is daylight at noon. The branch of astronomy, which determines the course of the stars and the return of eclipses, being once known, there is no dispute amongst astronomers. So he's pointing out what, again, seems obvious to us, right? Right. 300 years later, all these various sects, not only of Christianity, but all these different religions, right? The fact that they're arguing amongst themselves and have been arguing for thousands of years seems to me that no one's found the truth. He said, what would be the true religion if Christianity did not exist? Uh, the religion in which there were no sects, the religion in which all minds were necessarily in agreement. I mean, that that sounds like... What would happen if actually there was a god and he established a religion, right? right. It, seemed, it would be obvious and everyone would agree. Like the basic tenets of science, right? Where um, almost all agree on basic scientific tenets. They only disagree or form parties when there's like some uncertainty or, or something's unknown. Voltaire said, It has been said before, and it must be said again, if you have two religions in your land, the two will cut each other's throats. But if you have 30 religions, they will dwell in peace. Uh, compare that to Washington's disdain for political parties, right? He didn't like oh, right, right. factions that, that they would you know, kind of throw the, the country into turmoil. Um, or Jefferson or Madison's thoughts on keeping all of the different sects at bay, right? They, that's why they didn't want an established religion. If you've got one or two that are dominant, then uh, they're going to destroy each other and the country with them. But if you've got 50, 60, no problem. 
Voltaire also argued for the separation of church and state. Uh, he said, our soul acts internally. Internal actions are thought, volition, inclinations, acquiescence in certain truths. All these acts are above coercion and are within the ecclesiastical minister's sphere only insofar as he must instruct but never command. The soul also acts externally. External actions are under the civil law. Here, coercion may have a place. Temporal or corporal penalties maintain the law by punishing those who infringe it. Wasn't he also the one that said if God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him? I think that that's him? true, yeah. <laughs> oh, he really said, think for yourselves and let others enjoy the privilege to do so too. Voltaire uh, is eminently quotable. Again, he was disparaged as a, an atheist, and maybe secretly he was, but it was kind of really dangerous to be an atheist. Uh, and maybe he was really a deist, and it's tough to say. Anyway... Yeah. Adam Smith, whose economic theory of capitalism, which is based on competition around limited resources, uh, influenced Darwin's theory of evolution, uh, wrote in 1759 that the moral sense is derived from our basic human capacity for empathy, which is innate and independent from religion, which, of course, must be learned. In The Wealth of Nations, written in 1776, he argued that a monopoly of religion was as harmful as a monopoly in commerce. Right? So he said... Zeal must be altogether innocent, where the society is divided into two or three hundred, or perhaps into as many as a thousand small sects, of which no one would be considerable enough to disturb the public tranquility. The teachers of each sect, seeing themselves surrounded on all sides with more adversaries than friends, would be obliged to exercise moderation. So again, same idea. Unfortunately, there was a great awakening of religious fervor, probably in reaction to the Enlightenment, <laughs> which was itself a reaction to religious <laughs> fervor. Um, that happened around, I think, the 1740s, 1750s. Was it uh, Whitefield who came in preaching? And, and all these Baptists and Methodist sects started uh, rising up and, and uh, taking converts away from predominantly Anglican religions of, uh, th that existed at the time. So while this is happening amongst the lay people, the intellectual elites, such as who make up the bulk of our founding fathers, deism uh, was very popular, uh, Unitarianism, which is essentially a Christian form of deism, <laughs> very, yeah. very few differences between the two, and then latitudinarianism, which basically is a form of religion that gives wide latitude to doctrines and uh, beliefs and religious rites. They don't really care, basically. <laughs> So long Lat latitudinarianism? What? Lat latitudinarianism. It was a, it was a religion basically of tolerance. You know, just take some word of things we believe and put a rhythm arianism in the end. <laughs> right. It is, That's you know, us. Basically, they gave them wide latitude to believe pretty much what they wanted, as long as you know you're good, decent. <laughs> oh, I, I should I define, I suppose, deism and not just assume that everyone knows what it is. Deism is the idea that. The universe required a creator deity, basically. But he was so competent that he set everything in motion yeah. and then sort of left. Um, he doesn't, He's like, done. Yeah. He's much more competent than Yahweh, who has to fucking interfere with shit all the time. Right. He has to get in everybody's business over and over. He's got to send hurricanes to wipe out things he doesn't like. He's got to talk to specific people in certain places around the world that nobody would ever believe. Um <laughs> Right, exactly. He's kind of an asshole. Whereas the deist god is kind of removed from day-to-day -day affairs. Uh, in, if anything, he might be involved with fate or something like that, you know, some nebulous yeah. 
benign guidance. If I ever become a god, Chuck, I think I'll I think I'll be more of a deist god. Yeah. When I, I become a Mormon god, I think I'll be a deist. Like you're right. Yeah, that sounds good. We get our own planet. Yeah. The environment the founding fathers found themselves in, uh, of the thirteen states represented at the Constitutional Convention, every single one has established religions written into their state constitutions, with just two exceptions, Virginia and New York. Virginia. Now, when, when they decided to frame the Constitution, did they frame it based on the 11 states who had established religion? No. Yes. They, they, oh. <laughs> they framed it basically on Virginia, right? Uh, yeah. Who's, uh, which had written into its Constitution the Statute on Religious Freedom from Jefferson. So I'm sure it was a complete coincidence, given the fact that our founding fathers were all fundamentalist Christians. Yes, evangelicals, I believe. Yes. So in addition to framing the Constitution basically without once mentioning God, uh, there is the Treaty of Tripoli. Oh, the Treaty – you atheists always bringing that up. <laughs> it, what was, I think it was written under Washington, endorsed by President John Adams, sent to the Senate for ratification. And at that point, the votes had been recorded 339 times. And there was only, to that point, two unanimous votes in the Senate's history. That was the third. Out of 339 votes, that was only the third unanimous vote in Senate's history. And this is what they're agreeing on here. Article 2 of the treaty says, As the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, as it has in itself no character of enmity against the laws, religion, or tranquility of Muslimen. Again, that's Muslim. Muslimen. And as the said states had never entered into any war active hostility against any Mahometan nation. It is declared by the parties that no pretext arising from religious opinion shall ever produce an interruption of the harmony existing between the two countries. So, again, unanimous. What's a Mahometan? A follower of Mahometan. Mahometan? Mahometan? Just like we're Jesusans. Oh, Mahometan. I guess if you Hi. say Christian, you, you can say Mahometan. Right. Well, it's basically a clear admission by the United States that our government is not founded upon Christianity, right? A unanimous admission. But Christians never let facts get in the uh, way of uh, spreading Christianity. Yeah. But a treaty represents U.S. law, right? It represents U.S. law and all U.S. treaties. Um, that's from, what, the Article 6, Section 2, the Constitution and the laws of the United States will should be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land. And the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything of the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary, notwithstanding. Whatever, so, that, just, whatever that just said. <laughs> I agree with it. I that agree means all, it. if it's written in the treaty, it's a law of the land. Damn straight. So it's law of the land that we're not a Christian nation. In any sense, founded on the Christian In religion. any sense. Well, that's the, you know, there's a lot of interpretation that go into that. So that's, Matt, that's pretty much the Enlightenment. It's a rejection of revealed or special knowledge. If there's any knowledge, it should be available to all, and all can look at it and, and either agree or assent or not to it, independently of any <clears throat> civic authority or ecclesiastical authority. Uh, the world is a comprehensible place, and it's discoverable by science and the work of men, and men therefore have individual rights and a right to uh, determine their own future. These are all Enlightenment ideas. Tolerance, not only tolerance, but religious freedom, a fundamental right of, uh, of humankind, again, 
before the Enlightenment, this wasn't even debated over. Yeah. Uh, it was legislated. So thought that, that they could design a government that was based on these Enlightenment ideals, fundamental human rights, uh, religious freedom, not just toleration, because what an authority can tolerate, it can also stop tolerating, right? So right. not just toleration. They went further than Locke. Uh, they wanted religious freedom. None of these ideas, not the comprehensibility of the universe, not science, not religious freedom, not independent autonomy of man, none of these ideals can you find in the Bible or Christianity. It's essentially the exact opposite. This is what the Enlightenment was reacting to. Are you sure about that? You know, because the Bible is the source of all morality. <laughs> all, Chuck. Yeah, the Bible is very tolerant of other religions. Super tolerant. Makes a good uh, case for religious freedom. It made like the same cases like the Puritans in Massachusetts made for religious freedom, right. which is basically they defined as freedom from religious error. So you fucking agree with me or you're fucking out of the colony. You don't have any rights. And do you notice, too, that they don't – when recently there's been this trend in, in Christians that they'll, they're not going to refer to the Constitution – They'll refer to these state charters. Right? Yeah, yeah. See how religious these people are? These state charters establish religion. Well, that was what, again, the Founding Fathers were reacting against. If they wanted to do that, they had 11 states to choose from as examples. They chose right. the two that didn't have an established religion, specifically. Although I still kind of laugh sometimes. And You ever think they looked at each other when they wrote, like, religious freedom, all men are created equal? Kind of like, we know who we're talking about, though. Just The white, white folk? <laughs> Just white people But at least like. they laid the groundwork. Yeah. They did that much. Uh, once again, sorry, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> All men are created equal. We're, we're getting there, though. We're getting white, there. <laughs> white, white men, specifically. Um, so why don't we talk about specific founding fathers? And I've been droning on for a long time. Do you have uh, Thomas Paine prepared? I have. I'm going to bring the pain, Chuck. Excellent. Why don't we talk about Thomas Paine, who is kind of uh, a founding father. I don't think he was at the Constitutional Convention and didn't sign the Declaration, uh, but why, right. was, why was Thomas Paine, why could he be considered a founding father? Thomas Paine, born the 29th January 1737 at Thetford, England, son of a Quaker, founder of the phrases, bring the pain, no pain, no gain, and I don't have time for pain. <laughs> I believe. <laughs> I believe that is uh, stunningly accurate. Uh, Chuck, in 1774, he met one founding father you may be familiar with, Benjamin Franklin, who advised him to immigrate to America and gave him letters of recommendation, right? So Payne landed at Philadelphia November 30th, 1774. He rode himself over. That's the kind of man he was. Got he rode across the Atlantic? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I'm, I'm going to fuck at America. God, that is <laughs> impressive. Uh, he had to start over as a publicist. And uh, he, pers he one of the first things he published was his uh, African Slavery in America in the spring of 1775, criticizing slavery in America. It wasn't, it wasn't a good book about slavery, Chuck. It was uh, criticizing slavery as being unjust and inhumane. Well, how about that? Uh, in his view, the the colonies basically had the right to revolt against any government that would impose taxes but did not give them right of representation. I've never heard that before. Where have you heard that? Never. Um, but for him, 
he went even further. He said there was no reason for the colonies to stay dependent on England. And uh, on January 10th, 1776, those ideas were formulated in a little pamphlet you might know as Glenn Beck's favorite reading material. <laughs> Common sense. <laughs> Common sense. <laughs> he, do you know that he originally published that anonymously? And, did he? Uh, I did not he, know. He um, specifically wrote in there that the man who wrote this is, you know, is unimportant, blah, blah, blah. And then he got into an argument with his publisher, and he was like, fine, Thomas Paine. You know what I learned is that pamphlets were, like, hugely popular back then. They're like the comic books of the 1770s. Yeah. You could make money off of it. Yeah, he made a bunch of money. I think he donated his money to the charity that he made off of it. But uh, he made a bunch of money, and this pamphlet was circulated far and wide throughout all of the colonies and was probably the unifying factor uh, for revolution. Right. Many copies were sold. Um, I mean, this would be good nowadays. Five, like something like 500,000 yeah. is what I turned out. Not only were they sold, but they were like read in meeting halls uh, to people who were illiterate. <laughs> so, I mean, it was literally – it just spread far and wide across the entire uh, country at the time. Uh, but let's get into the Glenn Beckian points of this. The common sense. Uh, <laughs> the Payne states, sooner or later, independence from England – must come because America has lost touch with it. Uh, in his words, basically all the arguments for separation from England are nothing more than simple facts, plain arguments, and also common sense. Government is a necessary evil that could only become safe when it was representative and altered by frequent elections. Huh? Matt, we all know common sense is right 100% of the time. <laughs> all the time. Uh, the function of government is society ought to be only regulating and therefore as simple as possible. Although Glenn Beck doesn't really like regulations now. But um, not surprisingly, this was his call for a declaration of independence. During the War of Independence, Payne volunteered in the Continental Army and he started writing uh, 16 American Crisis Papers, which he published between 76 and 83. And in 1777, he became Secretary of the Committee of Foreign Affairs. Uh-oh. Which sounds very fancy. That's a signal to England. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But he was forced to resign by 1779 because he had disclosed secret information. So, oh. not, Whoops. not well done. Whoops. Sorry. That's what happens when you write pamphlets all the time. Exactly. Uh, so for the following nine years, he went back to work as a clerk at the Pennsylvania Assembly and published uh, several more writings. In 1787, he went back to England, but only to raise funds for the building of a bridge he had designed. Uh, this, is, this is your uh, founding father, Chuck. Not only writes, gets out there and builds shit. Damn straight. Then he became involved in the French Revolution. Uh, he published uh, numerous editions between uh, 1791 and 1792 of his uh, uh, Rights of Man, which you might have heard of. Yeah, it's a defense of the uh, <coughs> French Revolution, which unfortunately I believe was probably the precipitating event to bring the Enlightenment to a close. Right. <laughs> you had a bunch of people who uh, were murdering each other, not for religious reasons anymore, but uh, just for purely political reasons now. Right. It was just more, it was a little bit more than just a defense, of, but it was an analysis of the roots of discontent in Europe, uh, which he laid as arbitrary government, poverty, illiteracy, unemployment, and war. It was banned in England for being opposed to monarchy. But he was not arrested in English because he was on his way to France, having been elected to the National Convention. And uh, although he was... <laughs> In prison under Robespierre in 1793 because he had voted against the execution of King Louis XVI, who was disthroned. 
Uh, Payne has kind of a, a knack for getting involved in stuff and then turning around and screwing it up. So. Yeah. <laughs> age of Reason was written in praise of the achievements of the Age of Enlightenment. And uh, this is one of the books he was accused of being an atheist uh, for, which apparently is a bad thing. I have to accuse someone of being an atheist. It, yes, it is a pejorative term. Right. It is uh, not, not a compliment in this day and age. Uh, Thomas Jefferson invited him back to America uh, after he was released uh, in France in 1802. Hey, <laughs> come to America. Thomas Jefferson met him in Paris when he was a minister, and he quite admired him. You know, there's a lot – you can see um, the conjoining of ideals, I think, between the two of them. It's interesting because Thomas Paine was not a politician, yeah. right? So he didn't he didn't have to be circumspect about his uh, ideas, and no one's voting for him or not voting for him. He just wrote pamphlets. Yeah. But at the time when he was, you know, from 1776, where he was kind of the driving force, uh, the spark behind the revolution, he came back in 1802, he was just considered an asshole. <laughs> right, that's exactly. Uh, he comes back to the States kind of forgotten what he had done. You know, they, they called him the great infidel. Yeah. After his death in New York City, uh, June 8, 1809, uh, his epitaph was, uh, he lived long, did some good, and much harm. That's it. <laughs> You know that when he died, six people attended his funeral. Six. <laughs> no one really liked him. And um, he's another one where probably an atheist, maybe nominally a deist, um, not quite sure. But there are a couple quotes from Thomas Paine I've got. One is on the Old Testament. Whenever we read the obscene stories, the voluptuous debaucheries, the cruel and torturous executions, the unrelenting vindictiveness with which more than half the Bible is filled, it would be more consistent that we called it the word of a demon than the word of God. It is a history of wickedness that has served to corrupt and brutalize mankind, and for my own part, I sincerely detest it as I detest everything that is cruel. Nice. <laughs> he didn't mince words about uh, Christianity or Judaism. He said on the New Testament... Putting aside everything that might excite laughter by its absurdity, or detestation by its profaneness, and confining ourselves merely to an examination of the parts, it is impossible to conceive a story more derogatory to the Almighty, <laughs> more inconsistent with his wisdom, more contradictory to his power than this story is. So, yeah. He sounds like a deist. This story... <laughs> these these, these uh, words, stories, writings, uh, did not stand him in good stead. And I'm amazed, actually, that Jefferson uh, was seen in public with him. And that was really kind of, I mean, you, you got howls from all the Christians that the President of the United States is consorting with uh, these infidels. But Jefferson, again, man of principle. Yeah. And if you, uh, Age of Reason, really something you should check out if you haven't. It was, it was a time where examining the Bible as a text objectively and critically was just kind of unheard of, you know. One of the Enlightenment projects. Yeah. It's a free thought classic. Um, the first part, <laughs> uh, he demonstrates the absurdity of the Word of God existing in print, and as a deist, he believed the true nature of the Word of God. I'm sorry, the true Word of God is nature, that is. Part two is basically an uh, examination of the Old and New Testament and how they can not be the Word of God. Yeah, deists pretty much believed that um, God gave us reason, and that's how he reveals things for us, through, through, the, through the existence of nature, that it's... Uh, comprehensible and you can study it and through the use of our reason that, that's essentially deism yeah um his i like one of his quotes uh 
about <laughs> the age of reason is um, they will now find that I have furnished myself with a Bible and Testament, and I can say also that I have found them to be much worse books than I had conceived. If I have erred in anything in the former part of the age of reason, it has been by speaking better of some parts than they deserved. <laughs> <laughs> they are worse than I thought. <laughs> Thomas Paine. Not making himself too many friends anywhere, really. The vast majority of people are, are one flavor or yeah. another of Christian. But, you know, if you read the private letters of Franklin, Jefferson, Madison, and they, they pretty much believed exactly the same thing as Thomas Paine did. Yeah. You know, I haven't, I really haven't read enough on what, say, somebody like Bex thinks of pain. You, you hear him quoting him all the time, but I, I think it's just, it's the, it's the small government ideals, but, but not the absurdity of religion ideas. If Beck quotes Thomas Paine, he's got to do it very, very carefully. Very, very carefully. Well, that's Thomas Paine, Chuck. Not a founding father, but still part of this podcast. The founding well, I think fathers. we got kind of a, a a spiritual founding father. He is, right? he is heavily influential. Um, yeah, I, I liked how he he just bopped back and forth between Europe and America and just managed kept to- getting himself <laughs> imprisoned everywhere. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> everywhere he goes, he's like, "My God, these are great ideas!" And then the next thing is like, uh, "You're fired. You've been giving out secrets to the enemy." <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you! You're in chains. Chuck, let's move on to a real founding father. Yeah, Benjamin Franklin, who brought over Thomas Paine, and uh, I guess maybe it was Benjamin Franklin's fault that the revolution happened then. Yeah, what a dick. I mean, well done. Well done, Franklin. (laughs) I'm I'm still withholding judgment. (laughs) (laughs) Until until, uh, everything's in. Until 2016. Uh, Franklin Franklin came from a family of devout Protestants uh, dating back to the beginning of the Reformation. He wrote in his autobiography about his family in the 1500s as Protestants under the reign of Queen Mary, who was Catholic. His ancestors had their own little Protestant Bible. Uh, They fastened beneath the seat of a stool, and they flipped the stool over whenever they wanted to read it. And so they had a little kid at the uh, door as a guard, right, to watch out for roaming officers. (laughs) (laughs) Whenever they came, he'd he'd flip it back, put the stool back, and they'd kind of go about their business. Franklin's father, Josiah, moved his wife and three children to America in 1682, seeking religious freedom. For Franklin, though, you know, the memories of the bloody excesses and religious persecutions of the Reformation uh, were pretty much stamped into him from an early age uh, by his parents. So his father, Josiah, sold tallow candles for a living, ended up having 14 children. So maybe he was one of the early uh, quiverful movement protagonists. (laughs) Protagonists? Founders? He's a founding father of the quiverful movement. protagonist? Yeah, I couldn't come up with anything. What is this, literature class? (laughs) Uh, Josiah recognized that Benjamin, his youngest boy, was pretty intelligent Uh, So he sent him to become a minister But withdrew him after, I think, less than a year (laughs) And sent him on to learn writing and arithmetic instead (laughs) He didn't last long studying to be a minister Uh, He only lasted a year studying writing and arithmetic And then shortly after, apprenticed with his older brother, James 
part of the reason he was he was kept getting withdrawn from these schools is is that Josiah really couldn't afford them. But Franklin certainly never seemed a good fit for the ministry. No. Uh, he, he later said, My father's little library consisted chiefly of books in polemic divinity, most of which I read, and have since regretted that at a time when I had such a thirst for knowledge, more proper books had not fallen in my way. <laughs> They're all about religion. How worthless! Indeed. He spent his teenage years reading works of the Enlightenment, right? Such as... John Locke and deist Anthony Collins stopped attending church shortly after that. <laughs> uh, let's contrast that to my teenage years of reading comic books and watching kung fu movies. Works of the Marvel and DC Enlightenment. <laughs> he wrote a letter to his brother James Paper under the disguise of a little old lady named Silence Duguid. What? Oh, <laughs> I'm I'm surprised she wasn't Prudence Duguid. Right. Well, I don't know. It's like which. Which one's more? Which one do we desire more? Sounds like a men's right movement. <laughs> Silence, do good. Uh, what is follows? It has been for some time a question with me whether a commonwealth suffers more by hypocritical pretenders to religion or by the openly profane. But some late thoughts of this nature have inclined me to think that the hypocrite is the most dangerous person of the two, especially if he sustains a post in the government, and we consider his conduct as it regards the public. A man compounded of law and gospel is able to cheat a whole country with his religion and then destroy them under the color of law. Does that sound like enlightenment shit or what? That That's some good enlightenment shit. Or that's does that stuff. sound like fundamental evangelical Christianity? Oh, yeah, it could be, could be. It's pretty close. <laughs> Regarding his own beliefs, Franklin said, My parents had early given me religious impressions and brought me through my childhood piously in the dissenting way. And that means he was um, brought up a Calvinist, a Protestant, oh. not a Catholic. Dissenting. But I was scarce 15 when, after doubting my turns of several points, as I found them disputed in the different books I read, I began to doubt of Revelation itself. Some books against deism fell into my hands. It happened that they wrought an effect on me quite contrary to what was intended by them, for the arguments of the deists, which were quoted to be refuted, appeared to be much stronger than the refutations. Love in it. short, I soon became <laughs> a thorough deist. <laughs> I love it. It's a familiar journey. I'm, I'm starting to feel Franklin here. Yeah, a common thread that uh, a lot of these guys, again, are not fundamentalist Christian evangelical Baptists. They're deists. So Franklin said that he maintained some religious principles of his own, but they weren't Christian principles. I had been religiously educated as a Presbyterian, and though some of the dogmas of that persuasion, such as the eternal decrees of God, election, reprobation, etc., appeared to me unintelligible, <laughs> others doubtful, <laughs> and I early absented myself from the public assemblies of the sect, Sunday being my studying day, <laughs> I was never without some religious principles. I never doubted, for instance, the existence of the deity, uh, that he made the world and governed it by his providence, that the most acceptable servants of God was the doing good to man, that our souls are immortal, that all crime will be punished and rewarded. These I esteemed the essentials of every religion, and being to be found in all the religions we had in our country, I respected them all. That sounds like he's a latitudinarianist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As long as he has, you know, you got a couple things and they teach people to do right, he gives them wide latitude as far as other shit. Uh, so Franklin's more pragmatic about religion than uh, anything else, really. Little time for a person's thoughts or fine points of doctrine. He considered actions more important. 
He didn't care so much about faith, but a person's works. And this is a common thread. You'll find this, I think, with Washington and Jefferson, too. Um, he says, I think vital religion has always suffered when orthodoxy is more regarded than virtue. And the scriptures uh, assure me that at the last day, we shall not be examined by what we thought, but what we did. And our recommendation will not be that we said, Lord, Lord, but that we did good to our fellow creatures. Right. So he also had a, um, a pretty poor view of most preachers. Though I seldom attended any public worship, I still had an opinion of its propriety and of its utility when rightly conducted, and I regularly paid my annual subscription for the support of the only Presbyterian minister or meeting we had in Philadelphia. He used to visit me sometimes as a friend and admonish me to attend his administrations, and I was now and then prevailed on to do so, once for five Sundays successively. Had he been, in my opinion, a good preacher, perhaps I might have continued. <laughs> but it's just... <laughs> His discourses were chiefly either polemic arguments or explications of the peculiar doctrines of our sects, and were all to me very dry, uninteresting, and unedifying, since not a single moral principle was inculcated or enforced, their aim seeming rather to make us Presbyterians than good citizens. I was disgusted and attended his preaching no more, so... Ah, I've been there. <laughs> Franklin, not impressed by uh, this preacher that he paid... Uh, and I guess this was common, too. You, you paid a little fee to, for the upkeep of your minister. Um, some of that's voluntary, but some of it is uh, enforced by the state. It's like a, it's a tax. Yeah. Now, Joseph Priestley, uh, who's a discoverer of oxygen. The discoverer of oxygen? My, that's awesome. Uh, wrote about Franklin in his autobiography. It is much to be lamented that a man of Franklin's general good character and great influence should have been an unbeliever in Christianity and also have done as much as he did to make others unbelievers. <laughs> uh, Franklin hated religious tests. He thought that they weren't um, so much to secure religion in a person as to secure money from that person for the religion. <laughs> so he said, quote, When a religion is good, I conceive that it will support itself. And when it does not support itself, and God does not take care to support it, so that its professors are obliged to call for help of the civil power, tis a sign I apprehend of its being a bad one. He uh, opposed the Pennsylvania Constitutional Convention's decision to require office holders declare their belief in God, but unfortunately he was outnumbered. So the Pennsylvania Constitution had that in there. Uh -huh. When Franklin later became governor of Pennsylvania, he and the state assembly actually repealed that law so as, quote, to confer equal privileges upon every citizen in the state. So... He was serious about this shit. Yeah. Now, Matt, remember a little while ago, it could even have been the last episode, it's been so fucking long, uh, the guy who said Benjamin Franklin prevailed upon the Constitutional Convention to pray? Yeah. Remember that? And then they all got down on their knees. <laughs> and said a prayer, and they got up and they wrote the fucking Constitution. I remember it. That was Ben Carson. That's a true story. That happened. Yeah. The truth is a little more complicated. So here's what happened. Here's what actually happened. The daily sessions were getting pretty heated. People are arguing back and forth. They're not making any progress. So Franklin, um, himself known as a deist, right? He, uh, he's kind of making a concession by proposing that they open with a prayer to kind of calm everybody down and, and kind of reboot the system, right? Yeah. Um, specifically, a non-denominational prayer using words like God, the Father of Lights, Providence. This is, you know, common deist terms for God. Right. And never mentioning Jesus. 
the delegates, however, argued amongst themselves about which minister to use, <laughs> whether that choice would disproportionately benefit that particular minister's congregation, right. uh, how how the minister would be paid. Basically, the matter was dropped before even coming to a vote. Uh, Franklin wrote in his journal, the convention, except for three or four persons, thought prayer unnecessary. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's Fuck you, always, Ben Carson. There's always those group. There's always those people. No, let's. we must say a prayer. Never, okay, God damn it. Okay. <laughs> All right, who do you want to say it? Not him. <laughs> so that picture where he said, you know, when during the Revolutionary War, we were daily on our knees to pray. Now, now let's... Uh, Pray for this concert, you know. It did never fucking happen. Yeah. Never happened. Uh, just six weeks before Franklin's death at 84 years old, uh, the president of Yale, Ezra Stiles, wrote a letter requesting that Franklin clarify his religious beliefs. Here's Franklin's response: Here is my creed. I believe in one God, Creator of the universe, that He governs it by His providence, that He ought to be worshipped, that the most acceptable service we render to Him is doing good to His other children, that the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life, respecting its conduct in this. These I take to be the fundamental points in all sound religion. As for Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire, I think his system of morals and his religion, as he left them to us, uh, the best the world ever saw or is likely to see, but I apprehend it has received various corrupting changes, and I have, with most of the present descenders in England, some doubts as to his divinity though it is a question that I do not dogmatize upon, having never studied it, and think it needless to busy myself with now, when I expect soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble. Because <laughs> he's going to die. Right. <laughs> I see no harm, however, in its being believed, if that belief has the good consequence, as it probably has, of making his doctrines more respected and better observed, especially as I do not perceive that the Supreme takes it amiss by distinguishing the unbelievers in his government of the world with any particular marks of his displeasure. So pretty much he's the fucking consummate diplomat, right? He's the right. Franklin was the one who went over to France and secured their funding. Right. When he went over there, by the way, uh, there was this big uh, to-do about him and Voltaire because uh, Franklin was seen as the Voltaire of America, right? <laughs> like the, the Enlightenment philosopher of America. Anyway, he's very diplomatic about this, but clearly... He doesn't. He's not a Christian. No. He, and as a matter of fact, he viewed Christianity pretty much with indifference, right? More than anything else. If it leads to good consequences, then great. If it doesn't, yeah, sure. then, you know. <laughs> he never went out of his way to denigrate Christianity, but he neither did he go out of his way in any particular way to support it. And he certainly never proclaimed a belief in the divinity of Jesus, despite his being raised as a Protestant, right? A Calvinist. So that is Benjamin Franklin, one of our founding fathers. Let's stop there. And I want to go over George Washington, John Adams, uh, Thomas Jefferson, maybe James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton uh, for the next time. Let's end with my Franklin quote. I believe in one God, creator of the universe, and that he ought to be whipped from pillar to post and back again for shameful actions towards humanity. Damn, Franklin! <laughs> Whip him! Does that come from your handbook of uh, atheist lies? <laughs> that comes from wit and wisdom. Poor Richard's almanac, maybe. <laughs> With a, uh, an ellipse in the middle of it.